Do keep your Bibles open at this uh, great chapter. Very interesting, one of the compelling aspects, really, of the narrative as we now slow down and John, as he takes us through these events as they unfold, <clears throat> is that it's only at this point in John's gospel that a theme that you find appearing earlier in other gospels is focused on by John as he nears the end of the story of Jesus. It's at this moment when he is bound and beaten and bloodied and bruised that John allows to highlight the emphasis on Jesus' kingship, Jesus as king. That's not to say that John hasn't known that this theme has been there in the background. In his account of the life of Jesus, he's chosen to save the references to this point. He, he is struck by the fact that uh, by the time we get to this point in his life, it is the kingship of Jesus that really takes center stage. John, as you'll know, had access behind the lines, as it were, because of contacts he had. He was able to hear firsthand things that were going on behind the scenes where Jesus was taken, for example, into the compound of the high priest's court, and then later as he has contacts in the Roman, in the Roman compound as well. And so he, he knows about some of these things that were said there that others perhaps were unfamiliar with. And so by the time we get to chapter 19, he is at his least king-like, Jesus, and yet he is presenting himself. He has just said to Pilate that he is indeed the king, that his kingdom is not of this world. And uh, it's the kingdom of Jesus now that is all over the place in the passion narrative of John's gospel. And caught up in these events, the events of the Jews, that is, the Jewish elite having handed him over to the authorities, the Roman authorities. Uh, now that he's in the hands of the world's only superpower at this point, we're all confronted, they are all confronted with the question, what will we do with Jesus? And that's a good question for you this evening. What will you do with Jesus? Caught up in these events is this man, Pilate. Pilate is the embodiment of imperial Rome in the region. Embracing as it did most of the then known world, Rome represents humanity as a whole in its official institutions. And three times in the record, Pilate, in chapters 18 and 19, three times, Pilate says publicly, officially, in his role as the governor and the Roman appointee, I find no basis for a charge against him. And to understand the importance of that, we remind ourselves again today as we come to chapter 19 that Pilate is acting as the legitimate authority in the state, just as the Sanhedrin was the legitimate religious authority within Judaism. Pilate is the legitimate secular authority within the empire. And so, if you want to think of it as a moment this evening, here we have, here we have his own nation, the Jews, against him. 
Here we have the Roman authorities representing the world as they knew it against him. Here we see the whole world, both the secular authority and the holy nation, both opposed to God's Christ. Psalm 2 comes to mind. The nations have gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. That is against the Lord's Christ. And what we have the Son of God doing here in this chapter is putting Himself at the mercy of the nations, the very people that He has made. You go back to chapter 1. He is the light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. Nothing was made that had not been made by Him. Here are His made things, the people He has made. Here are the powers that be, the authorities to whom He has delegated authority. He is the one that John says in chapter 1 is… before all things and in all things and upholding all things. He's the, he is the one who created all things in the beginning. And here he is standing in the dark. And before the Jewish authorities, he is charged with blasphemy. He calls himself the Son of God, which in their mind meant he is calling himself God. He shares the very nature of God. Here is the secular authority and What the Jews want, the Jewish elite that is, want is for them to charge him with treason and thereby put him to death. Blasphemy, treason. These two charges, interestingly, sum up in many ways the state of the human heart in relationship to God. On one hand, we we aspire to be in charge of our own lives, the master and commander of our own fate. We we want to have our destiny in our hands. Me, myself, and I becomes the center of our world, and we make ourselves mini-gods, as it were. And when we do turn to religious ideas, we have our own ideas of what we would like God to be. There are things we would like God to do if there was a God, and, and we conceive of God, if we conceive of Him at all, in our own image. Blasphemy, we do it all the time. Treason. We are God's subjects. This is God's world. And yet, treasonably, we resist His rule in our lives. So, these two charges leveled at Jesus are, in fact, charges of which we are guilty before God. Well, by accusing Jesus of these crimes and by pursuing Him to death, His accusers, do you notice, actually commit these very sins in their most extreme form. You can commit blasphemy by saying that God is not what God says He is. And you commit treason when you don't give to the, power that, the powers that be or the authority that is, the authority that they're due if you deny it. And what we find both the Jews and the Romans doing at this point is they refuse to believe Jesus' word that, about who He is and thereby commit blasphemy and they refuse to accept Jesus' authority and thereby commit cosmic treason. That's what's at stake here. And by taking this into their own hands, 
they are taking it on themselves to murder God. Now, that's a very extreme way of saying it. But in many ways, that is precisely what they are doing. They want to murder God in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Well, coming now to the chapter. Here in this chapter, we find the suffering of Christ is initiated. When we compare the gospel accounts, we put them all together, we discover that Jesus was subjected to terrible cruelty. Already, John has reported that he was struck on the face, probably with a weapon, before the high priest. He was spat upon and then roughed up, beaten up by the Sanhedrin. Pilate had him scourged. Roman soldiers took their turn to strike him. Then he was beaten with a rod and mocked. All of those things are passed over, actually, quite quickly in the narrative as John tells it. And uh, I think that's where, that's where kind of historical looks at, a look at these events can be helpful. I'm, I'm thinking of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And he, he, what he does in that movie is he focuses on some of the activities, the things that were done to Jesus. It's chilling to watch. It's distressing to watch. It's one of those movies that some people have said to me, you can only watch that movie once. And that's probably, that's probably right. Uh, it has that kind of effect on you. They're, they're rare. But the, the reason for the effect is that, that it is fairly well represented in that movie, the kind of raw brutality that was used by Roman soldiers on those who were under their charge. John focuses on two aspects of the sufferings of Jesus. He focuses, first of all, on the physical torture that Jesus endured. Uh, Pilate, we're told, took Jesus and flogged him. That's, it's all covered there. The whole of that movie, The Passion of Christ, a whole chunk of it, is covered in that one expression there. They took him and they flogged him. And Pilate, by doing this, by the way, at this point in the drama, does it at this stage, with the idea of sparing Jesus. He reckons that if, if he has him flogged, if he does him real serious damage, that that will be enough for the Jewish elite. That will be enough for them. When they see him bloodied and broken and beaten, that that will convince them that he's no longer a threat to them and they'll let him go. That, I think, is in Pilate's mind at this stage. Maybe he thought that by roughing him up this way, he would gain some sympathy and they would let Jesus go. Now, there were three forms of flogging administered by the Romans. There was fustigatio. That was uh, what you got for smaller offenses like hooliganism, and uh, was usually accompanied by a severe warning, and then you were let go. The second is flagagatio, and that was more brutal. That, that's what Jesus is, is speaking, is, is enduring here. And then the third level was verberatio, which was the most terrible of all and was the prelude to crucifixion itself. The last flogging was a severe trial and would be applied to Jesus later on once the decision to crucify Him was made. At this stage, it was probably the second Flagellatio. It's very hard to say uh, Sunday evening, let me tell you. 
And uh, it was used with the intention of seriously damaging Jesus. We have records from the, from the period that usually by the time a person had been subjected to this kind of beating, his bones would be visible through his flesh. And uh, victims often died just from the scourging itself. So there was the physical torture of the flogging, there was the physical torture of the crown of thorns being twisted, probably twisted so the longer thorns, which could be perhaps uh, up to 12 inches long, were pointing outwards, thereby looking like a cross, twisted and then pushed down onto His head. It was a mock crown, resembling the radiant coroner that was worn by many of the rulers in Jesus' time. The existing prongs would have stuck down into His skull, would have caused extreme pain, profuse bleeding, facial distortion, an agonizing, an agonizing experience. There was this physical torture. And along with the physical torture, John says, there was the psychological torture. The soldiers played with him. They had sport with him, we're told. They arrayed him in a public, in a purple robe, perhaps a military leader's cloak made to look like a royal garment. They mimicked him in, in an ironic way. They, the, they greeted him, Ave Caesar, Ave Caesar, Hail King, Hail King of the Jews. We know that was a popular form of taunting, mockery. In fact, they used to play a game when they were crucifying people that they called the game of mock king. And in fact, there are scratchings which they discovered relatively recently, preserved on the stone pavement of the fortress of Antonia where Jesus would have been held. There are scratchings there on the ground that, that mark out how the game was played, where it was played, the positions and so on. And you can imagine the kind of tension that there is between the Romans and the Jews, that the Roman soldiers got some sport from taking this Jewish pretender to be a king and, and uh, roughing him up. Here were these rough and tough Roman soldiers venting their pent-up frustration and anger against the Jews as a whole, shouting their Ave, 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 as they delivered their blows to his face, were retold over and over and over and over again. That's the language that, su that suggests it. Again and again, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 30, they even used the stick, beating it down on that crown of thorns to do even more damage to Him. And Pilate's idea was that the punishment and the mockery might somehow or other convince the Jew Jewish elite of the absurdity of their accusations against Jesus. It's very hard to get our minds around, isn't it, the awfulness of what is going on here. And yet in many ways, as Pilate has Jesus roughed up like this, the very action in itself is a kind of prophecy to the Jewish people. They would be familiar with their own Scriptures the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me, says 
the Son of God, in one of David's Psalms, Psalm 69. And here they are, the reproaches of those who reproach God are falling on Jesus. And the sufferings of Jesus are initiated. The second thing that happens in this chapter is that the person of Jesus is presented. Look at verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, that is to the mob, and the mob were there gathered by the elite. And keep in mind that it is the Jewish elite. Whenever John in his gospel talks about the Jews, he's not talking so much of the populace as a whole as the Jewish elite. That's who he has in mind. They're the people driving this move against Jesus. And so in verse 5, Pilate goes out to them again, and he says once more, I find no guilt in him. And then he is Jesus brought out. Jesus comes out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. In his mocked-up royal robes, wearing his crown, the purple the crown, behold the man. It's as if he's saying, behold the king. But he's also emphasizing by using that expression, behold the man, that insight that we were given in the very first chapter of John's gospel, that the one who's made everything and owns everything came into his own world and took on our flesh. There he is as man. He is suffering as the man, Christ Jesus. To Pilate, the choice of words would be spontaneous and would have drawn attention to his utterly wrecked and broken humanity. Behold the man, bleeding, broken, his bones visible, his body racked with pain, his face disfigured. Behold the man. And seeing Jesus in that state, the state the soldiers left him in, should have disabused anybody who was ever threatened by him. It's a heart-rending sight. But the form of Pilate's announcement here is more than casual. We've already noticed in John's gospel that the high priest earlier on, had prophesied without knowing. When they had that covert little Sanhedrin meeting and they were deciding, what are we going to do with Jesus? And they decided they'd get rid of Him. The high priest said, you'll remember, it is expedient that one man die for the people. And in saying that, he was prophesying why Jesus had to die. He had to die in place of as a substitute for, he had to endure the death that, his pe- that the people should experience. He was going to die for the people. Pilate, as he says these words, doesn't know that for those of, who were biblically literate out there, these words call to mind the very words of God in Zechariah 6. I'll read them to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man 
whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear the royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. He will be a king and a priest. He'll sit on his throne. The whole royal kingly language of this chapter and the previous chapter, echoing Zechariah 6, and it's as if Pilate without knowing it, is quoting that very chapter. We're going to go back there. We're to see that Pilate's words are an unconscious witness to the nation. He is indeed your king and your Messiah, and you're simply not having him. That's the problem. Behold the man. What did they want? We don't really know what they wanted. Perhaps a powerful personality who would strip the, the, the Roman Empire of its power and make them make Israel great again. What did Pilate offer them? Pilate offered them a figure of fun, <clears throat> a bloodied, bruised, broken figure, blood pouring out down his body and his legs, seeping into the sand, abused. I want to say to you this evening, if you've ever been abused or violated or bullied, Behold the man. He is being bruised and bullied and beaten for you. He came into the world to take that place for you. John has told us at the beginning of this gospel, in the beginning the Word was God and was with God, that nothing has been made that He did not make. And John means you to go back there and then wonder that he should have taken on our flesh and in our flesh been bullied and beaten and broken as this man is. Behold the man. He wants you to go back to Isaiah who talks about this coming servant and who writes as many as were astonished at you. The father is talking to his son there in Isaiah's report in chapter 52, verse 14. The father is speaking about his servant, and as he's speaking, he turns to his servant in in eternity, as it were, and says, as many as were astonished at you. And then he goes on and tells us the, the report, do you know his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's God the Father's reflection as He looks at His Son and remembers what they did to His Son. Isaiah's getting a vision of of post-resurrection glorified Jesus. My servant will be exalted and very high, God says, and turning to His Son as many as we're astonished at you. Then he gives us the reason. This is what they did to him. His appearance was so marred. You're listening to God the Father's reaction to Pilate's words, Behold the man. So if you've ever been abused or bullied or violated, 
In Jesus Christ, God the Son has been abused and violated and mocked and misused and subjected to physical pain and psychological anguish. What a comfort it is, isn't it, as we reflect on that, that our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, should undertake that experience for us. When I was living in Canada many years ago, we uh, called a young man to come be associate minister. He had just finished at Westminster Seminary, and I remember him telling me about uh, one of his friends at seminary who was visiting a, a young woman who had, at the age of 17, had an accident and was a paraplegic. That young woman was Johnny Erickson Tada, and uh, I only found out later that, that her name, I, I heard the stories about her, but later, of course, she became famous, and she wrote books, and she's still serving the church today. But she writes this in one place, I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathize with my situation. On the cross for those agonizing, horrible hours, waiting for death, He was immobilized, helpless, paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was like not to be able to move, not to be able to scratch your nose, shift your weight, wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. Jesus knew exactly how I felt. And when you see Jesus bound here as Pilate points to Him, brutalized by the soldiers, know this, dear friend, know this. If you have been brutalized or abused or mistreated or psychologically tortured, Jesus knows and understands and sympathizes with you. Maybe you've experienced ridicule and mockery. People have made fun of your eccentricities or your weight or your dullness or your inabilities or even your faith. Behold the man. One of the things we humans find it hardest to take is to be found looking silly or foolish. I know this because I'm frequently both. Sometimes I know what I'm doing, sometimes I don't know what I'm doing, like the time I flew down from Glasgow to London, not realizing that the pants I was wearing, which were like these, actually, that I'm wearing tonight, but I think they're okay. I didn't realize that they must have been near the end of their natural life. Because as I was getting up off the plane in the, uh, as we landed in London, walking down the aisle, I put my hand in my back pocket where I keep my money, and uh, I found that the pocket itself was kind of free standing, and there was nothing else there. That was very, very embarrassing, let me tell you. It was very embarrassing. I was absolutely mortified to be walking. I mean, it's, I didn't know when it had happened. I didn't know whether it happened before I got on the plane, whether it was sitting in that last little sitting, sitting in the plane had done the business or whatever, but it was desperately embarrassing. And I'm going around with my bag, walking through 
<laughs> the airport, and so it's desperately embarrassing. But there are more, worse things that can, you can do, I know, uh, than that. But it's a terrible thing to be embarrassed. And when you're embarrassed, when you feel that you have made a mess of your life, you remember what Isaiah says. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So here we have the Lord Jesus then, enduring this and enduring this on our behalf. I'm going to stop there because I think we're going to come to the table in a moment. But just reflect on that this evening as uh, I think that's the kind of thing sometimes we need to just pause and allow the truth of God to, to grip us. Behold the man. What an amazing thing that for me, for us, and for our sins, he should endure that, enduring the suffering for us. And there was more to come, of course. But even these things speak into the heart of our lives. We're coming to the table in a moment, and at the table, you know, we have bread that's broken. And it points us to the broken body of Jesus. We have wine and bread separated because His blood was separated from His body through the brutality of the soldiers and later through crucifixion. <clears throat> Life violently taken and for us and for our salvation. I want to ask you if, you, if you're not a Christian, do you understand that this is, where it all, this is where it all begins to make sense for us? That the God who made the world, in the words of Dorothy Sayre, she said, He has played the man he has taken our medicine. He's come into our world. We, we don't pray to a God who does not have a fellow feeling with our pain. He does. And it's in passages like this that, it brought, that it's brought home to us. So let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we thank You that our Lord Jesus, in utter humiliation, took our flesh that in our flesh He experienced all of what childhood and youth and manhood would bring Him. And this evening especially, we've been reflecting on what people did to Him, what people did to Him. And we come with a whole variety of experiences, nothing as bad, hopefully, as that, but people have done things to us. And we thank You that our Lord Jesus is a very faithful high priest over the house of God because He has experienced what we've experienced. And we can come to Him knowing that when we cast our burden on Him, when we pour out our hearts to Him, 
that he knows and that he cares. We thank you for him. In his strong name, amen.